thank you for joining us from wherever you are. This is the SBS Replay Podcast from the NYU School of Professional Studies Student Council. This season, we are proud to present our How I Got Here Lunchtime series, where we listen to the stories of our professors, alumni, and members of our community about their career, their journey, and how they got here. This week, we are joined by Professor Gina Antoniello. Gina Antoniello brings over a decade of sports communication and social responsibility experience to the classroom with previous positions with the XFL's New York Guardians, the NBA's Brooklyn Nets, and the Golden State Warriors. She has also appeared on regional and national network television as a courtside reporter for G League basketball games, for which she earned the sideline spot on broadcast for ESPN, NBA TV, the Yes Network, and the MSG Network. She is now a full-time professor for the Preston Robert Tisch Institute for Global Sports here at the NYU School of Professional Studies. The original session was recorded on Zoom and was hosted by Aggie Dent. Awesome. Thanks, April. That was such a nice introduction. It made me so happy. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, thanks for coming, guys. I'm really excited to introduce our professor, Gina Antoniello. Um, she's a sports communication executive with over a decade of experience in the sports field. She joined NYU as an assistant clinical professor of sports management in August of 2021. So we're super excited. She's only been here for a few months, but she's already done lovely things for us. Her last position was head of communications for the XFL New York Guardians. And prior to joining professional football, she held several leadership roles at the NBA. She worked for the Brooklyn Nets and the Golden State Warriors. And before that, she was on television as a courtside reporter for G League on um, ESPN, NBA TV, Yes Network, MSG Network, lots of lovely things there. She's also a PhD in sports management candidate at Troy University. Super excited. Troy's in Alabama. So love Alabama. She's working on athlete activism and social justice in sport and society. So I'm super excited to speak with Professor Antoniello. Um, yeah, so on that note, let's kind of just get started. So Professor Antoniello, can you kind of give us a little bit more background and just tell us a bit about your story? Yeah, hi everyone. Um, so good to see your faces and thank you so much for joining. I know it's just such a crazy time in the semester. So I'm so happy to be here with you. Um, Aggie, thank you for the wonderful introduction. Uh, really happy to be here. So um, before I get started on that, in the Zoom group chat, I always like to know who is joining us and a little bit about you. So if you get a couple of seconds, you know, drop a little intro in there. Um, I find that, you know, if we're going to spend some time together, I want to know about you as well. Uh, so anyway, uh, Aggie gave a great introduction. I started off my, my career early on. Um, I, I think I realized I wanted to be in the sports industry uh, at a very young age. So, you know, just taking every opportunity to figure out what I like and sometimes even more importantly, what I don't necessarily love. Uh, so I started interning, you know, doing everything from ticket sales to the in the Sony uh, Ericsson tennis tournament to, oh my gosh, uh, interning at, at within the athletics department um, at Wake Forest, just to figure out, you know, one, what do I like and and hey, what are my what are my skills and what am I, what am I actually good at? Because therein lies the key to a successful career and some upward mobility within the sports industry. Uh, so after I finished college at Wake Forest, I went and got my master's at uh, Columbia in sport management. And while I was doing that, I started working for 
the New Jersey Nats. So now I'm really dating myself. <laughs> this was before the transition to Brooklyn. And there I started off as a broadcaster. Um, it's when really everything started to become digital. So there was an opportunity to be a web correspondent, uh, to start building out fan accounts on social media, and really be a voice uh, during a time of transition and rebrand for an organization. You know, the the anticipation of Brooklyn, uh, there's a lot of eyeballs on, on the organization. So it's just very exciting to be a part of that and have a full-time job for the first time ever for my hometown team, because I'm from uh, New Jersey originally. Uh, and then after I spent some time with the New Jersey Nets, uh, I realized that I just loved storytelling and uh, not necessarily in the, the broadcasting form, uh, that actually really freaked me out. And it still does. Um, you know, you spend so much time preparing for live segments and you're looking to tell all these great stories. And then a lot of that ends up on the cutting room floor because you have to be mobile as the game evolves, as the storylines kind of dictate themselves during a live game. You have to be, you know, just as nimble. So what really fascinated me was um who was whispering in the players' ears or who was coordinating um, the actual interviews with the broadcasters. Uh, they looked like they had the inside track to what was really going on. Um, thus, my, my career and my burgeoning aspirations to be in public relations and sport communications really took off. And I got that opportunity to go um, out with a club uh, on the West Coast uh, called the Golden State Warriors in a PR role and had to take that. Um, I'm so blessed to say that before the age of 25, I was wearing two rings, two championship rings. I mean, just a good time <laughs> to join a really successful club. Um, and with that, I learned that that was really my passion, sport communications, player P PR, uh, developing social responsibility programs for players. And this was really before it was um, really okay for athletes to take controversial stances regularly on you know, different issues uh, that we are seeing all across um, sports pages today. Uh, so I always loved that. And it was hard balancing, um, controlling the narrative, right? Because as a public relations professional, you have to uh, do what's favorable for the organization while also amplifying our players' voices and making sure that they were speaking out on issues uh, that transcend sport. So that always been a passion of mine. Um, and then after spending a few years with the Golden State Warriors, uh, I was able to have the opportunity to boomerang back uh, to the New Jersey Nets organization, which became the Bro Brooklyn Nets, uh, Barclays Center, Brooklyn Boxing. They acquired Nassau Coliseum out on Long Island, and they were ready to program that venue filled with sports properties. They were anticipating the return of the New York Islanders. Uh, they were putting a boxing franchise and looking to bring back um, boxing to Long Island for the first time since 1986, where Tyson fought Zuski. So there were all of these amazing plans to program Nassau Coliseum after renovating it, and they needed someone to lead communications. So um, I had never done boxing before. I wasn't a boxing promoter. I had never done family shows such as Ringling Brothers and Burnham and Bailey or um, like anything like that. But I was going to be responsible for figuring it out and uh, leading communications for everything that was housed within the Coliseum while supporting the Islanders, while supporting the Brooklyn Nets um, and everything that was now a part of that portfolio. 
So I took that opportunity and I said, you know what, I'm gonna figure it out. Um, I have this experience, I'm gonna bet on me and I'm gonna take my experience and I'm gonna be coachable and I'm gonna figure it out. So I went there and I did that for a few years, had some incredible experiences, uh, was so stretched as far as uh, learning and uh, you know, ex- just the, the realm of experience working professional hockey, relocating a G League team uh, to the Coliseum, uh, having Brooklyn Nets preseason games there, dealing with uh, you know political ties because the Coliseum is public private, so we are beholden to the lease to deliver to the county certain things. So I was doing politics. Um, so what I learned there is you know just try to take something that's going to make you uncomfortable because that's where you're going to learn really the most. Um, and then finally, uh, <laughs> to wrap this all in a pretty little bow. I had the opportunity to join the XFL and I never thought I'd leave a portfolio uh, that was tied to professional basketball as you know, the, the nets were, I, that was, that's my passion. That is my passion. Um, but how many times do you get to start a professional sports league? I mean, you just don't get to do that every day. And um, I was so drawn in by the leadership of Janet Duke, who is, was one of the lone uh, female presidents of a football organization. And I was going to be able to be the head of communications uh, for the New York Guardians, which in professional football, in the history of it, 100-year brand is the NFL. CFL is out there, NFL Europe. There's only been one head of comms of a football operation, uh, first and only for the Houston Texans. So this was my opportunity to be the second ever in the history of professional football to lead a, lead a comms team. So I had to do that. We had to, we had to go ahead and, and figure that out. So I went there, it was incredible. COVID-19 comes along, not the greatest, um, but after a very successful launch, uh, unfortunately the league had to suspend operations and we all pivot, right? We all figure it out. Um, and since I had started my uh, PhD doctoral studies with my ultimate ultimate life goal being a full-time professor, um, I had the opportunity to come to NYU and, um, you know, fresh out of the industry and really just kind of look to to nurture the next generation of, of sports business leaders with a lens of social impact. That's what's really important to me. So that's my long, drawn out, I'm old career. Uh, and now I'm here. So thank you for all listening to that. <laughs> You've done so many amazing things. I hope I can do some of those. And I love that you use the word pivot. That's everyone's favorite word. I know everybody's thinking it. Um, so let's backtrack a little bit. Like at the very beginning, how did you know that you wanted to go into sports? What was it about sports? I know like when I was coming to NYU to study sports, I was thinking entertainment. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go music or what, but what drew you into the sports industry from the very beginning? So I'm a, I'm a fan. And I think that's what gets a lot of people initially hooked. You're like, wow, how cool would it be to, you know, work for Duke basketball? How cool would it be to work for, you know, enter favorite football team here? I think that's what initially kind of gets people going, right? And that was no different for me. I had my reservoir of memories tied to, you know, being a fan. But um, I realized early on that sport is really tied to social impact. And some of the greatest displays of humanity, you see um, professional athletes or athletes in general engaging in these very um, important community initiatives. You saw, I mean, I was in high school um, during Katrina and a sports venue housed 
you know, millions of, you know, hundreds of thousands of displaced people over the course of the recovery. Um, it's special. There's something to it. Uh, so I think when I really started digging in, I was looking at the intersection of how sport can galvanize a community and looking for a way to be a small part of that. Yeah, I think right now, especially like the value of an athlete platform is changing so much. It's really cool to see that you realized how valuable the sports industry's platform is before all of the social issues that are happening now in 2020. Um, it's great. But I wanted to ask you about your broadcasting. So how did you enter the broadcasting space? And then what was the transition like outside of broadcasting into PR and communications? So this is my just go for it story. And I encourage you all to literally just go for it. Whatever you're thinking um, and whatever you think that you maybe can't do, because like, I don't know, it's so competitive and it's like, but it has to be someone. So why not you? It could be you. So just go do it. And this was my go do it story. Um, I dabbled in, you know, broadcasting with like ESPN, ESPNU campus connections in college. I thought I had a gift of gab, whatever. It's, it's terrifying, but I was like, oh, maybe I, maybe I could do this. So I went to an open call for the New Jersey Nets, literally an open call. They were looking for their next uh, in arena, um, web correspondent, their in arena host. So they went to an open call and I said, well, if it has to be someone, maybe it could be me. And I just went for it. And they hired me. I went to, you know, callbacks and did the whole thing and really put myself out there. And they ended up hiring me during the lockout year, the year right before Brooklyn. And that's where I got my my real broadcast legs under me. Um, and from there, over the course of my career, I had opportunities to join, you know, limited telecasts for G League basketball games and um, ended up on on ESPN and NBA TV. And I'm just like, I was like, really? All because I just, I bet on myself when I was 21 and I showed up at this open call with hundreds of people and just gave it, gave it what I could. And that's where the, and that's where the chips fell. So, I mean, how cool. So the transition from that was, was, was good. It was, it was, I think what was supposed to happen when I, when I think about it um, in the journey, I loved figuring out how to tell different stories across different mediums. And when you're a, in a, public relations role, you're working with media from across the board. And now the the sport communication realm has evolved to the point where you're not just dealing with traditional broadcast networks and, uh, you know, the New York Times or even Newsday or your smaller publication um, in your local town, but influencers. And you're looking for ways to amplify the brand. And as digital has exploded, there are just so many opportunities to tell really amazing stories um, from lifestyle to traditional sports uh, to to the greater social impact that we're talking about here. So um, that is a work in progress. And you, for to be a uh, sport communications practitioner, you have to be able to anticipate how technology is going to change your job. Because if you're used to displacing, you know, stories in traditional newspapers, well, guess what? That's changed in the last 15 years. Um, what's next and how do you tell the story to account for new technology? So that is an, a learning process and it will continue to change uh, because the career of a sports communications practitioner has completely changed and will continue to. Definitely, definitely. I have to ask you, are you a Warriors fan or a Nets fan? Who's your team? Nets. 
nets. nets, nets, nets from the, and that's what, and that's the problem. That'll make you, you know, move across the country after you settled into California and right. you had the opportunity to win another couple of rings. That's the problem of being a super fan. You go to complete dysfunction um, and try to make your life a little bit more complicated because you're a fan. Um, but yes, I love the Warriors. They're, they're very special. That was like the Camelot in my career for sure. But I mean, I was one of those like lone people growing up in Jersey being like, wow, I wish I could be Jason Kidd. That would be cool. I love that guy. So that's how deep the fandom runs. I love it. I love it. Awesome. So last thing, and then we'll, I guess, transition into your transitions and what you've learned from all of your experience. But can you tell us more about your time at XFL, what you were doing? I know you were making history. You had a lot of responsibilities. So what was that like just coming into an organization that was you were launching yourself, really? Blank Canvas, which is uh, really exciting for the entrepreneurial mind. Not great if you like a blueprint. And, you know, so I like a little bit of chaos. Chaos makes the muse, uh, you know, but it was we were launching a league. Right. So it's not just like New York Guardians have to be really successful. We had seven other teams that all had to launch vertically. So while I was working on league initiatives, um, creating the rules of access that would be implemented across the board. So what does that mean? When media can enter the locker room, uh, what the rules of engagement are for ESPN and Fox, uh, you know, what the, if anyone has watched the XFL, it's the most intimate game watching experience because, you know, the four most major players on each team are mic'd. Um, broadcasters can tap into um, their mics at any time not only to listen, but to let it go live over over the national broadcast. Uh, so there were all these different elements that we had to consider from a league perspective, uh, media access rules, what a game day would look like. Um, and then not only that, you know, there was the football communications element. So everything football related rolled up into uh, what I was ultimately doing. So that was draft communications. And when you draft 70 players at once, that is no joke. I went from doing draft communications, trade communications for, you know, a 15 person roster. And then it's like, oh, you get thrown for a loop when the NBA makes assignment players of things. So now you have to worry about 17. This is 70 players. Uh, so everything that comes with that from their, their bios, who they are, facilitating access to them, uh, figuring out what their stories are to, to amplify their voices. Uh, and it's just a different, different animal in football, never mind one where 70 players are initially coming together for, for mini camp and then the roster's cut to about just over 50. Uh, so then there was that. And then there's this whole other element of corporate communication. So the organizational reputation, building that from the ground up, utilizing our team president as a spokesperson, getting out in the community and, um, you know, all of the business implications, worrying about New Jersey, um, but being a New York branded team and trying to engage everyone in the region. Uh, so a lot of different elements at play, but essentially um, I was the architect of a communication strategy uh, in totality from football uh, to, to the corporate and business side and charged with making sure that the spokespeople that were um, speaking out on behalf of our organization were messaged. Um, they were prepared and they were overall good ambassadors um, because we know that, you know, when there's no, you know, no recognition in the market, you want to put your best foot forward because a scandal or a controversy can really leave uh, a bad taste in people's mouths. So you have to kind of work and go above and beyond 
uh, to deliver that that customer experience from a public relations side. That's awesome. I have, I guess, two follow-ups to that, and then we'll move into the transitions, like I said before. But sure. um, can you kind of explain, just for people who might not know or they're not super familiar with XFL, like who are these players? Where did they come from? Like what are their backgrounds? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the XFL was and is because The Rock, uh, Dwayne Johnson, just bought and acquired with his business partner, Danny Garcia, who became the first uh, woman to own a sports league. I mean, that is so cool. That's who's running the XFL now. And they're they're positing for a relaunch pretty soon. Um, But the XFL is a complementary alternative um, to the NFL. So it plays in the NFL's offseason. It's not a direct competitor. It couldn't be positioned like that because the NFL is a 100-year brand. Um, what made the XFL different is that the game is American football. It's exactly what you'd watch if you tuned in to your favorite NFL team. But there were rule innovations that were meant to make the game quicker and more action-packed. So um, in an NFL game, this is a real stat, there's only about our research told us there's only about four minutes of real game action, actually running the ball, right? The XFL took a 45 second game clock and made it to a 25 second game clock. Um, They cut down the time to kind of reset up the next one to move the game a little bit quicker. So you get more action, less stall, more ball. That was the whole point of this, but it wasn't meant to be extreme or violent Um, It was just meant to be a little bit quicker with a little bit more access. So bringing the fan closer to the game of football um, during a time when football wasn't being played uh, and it was on national television. So anyone could watch any of the games on Saturday and Sunday. So that was that was the XFL. The players came from NFL um, uh, backgrounds. Some of them actually wanted to be a first string QB like Landry Jones, for instance, um, you know, he had the opportunity to go be third string in Detroit that year. And he said, you know what, I want to go play in my hometown. I want to go to church on Sundays. And, you know, I want to come home every night to where my family is and I get to play and maybe I get more game tape and maybe I go back to the NFL, but this is a really good situation for me. And we saw a lot of NFL caliber players, um, you know, declare themselves eligible for the draft. Uh, you know, not everyone could be a consistent NFL player, right? So we saw a lot of practice squad players from the NFL, a lot of former D1 players um, that just couldn't make the cut, whether it was, you know, they didn't hang on very long in training camp, but really elite athletes uh, that came from major Division I programs um, or, you know, some of the veteran, veteran people that played in the CFL in Canada, um, but very high quality athletes. And the the recruiting process and tape, and then of course clearing the background checks, um, was another insane process of making all of these players available for this player pool from which they were eventually drafted. I will say I love the action pact because I feel like lots of people who aren't familiar with American football in general, they don't want to watch it because when they turn on the TV, they're just standing there or there's not a play happening. So I think that's really great that the XFL prioritized that from the beginning to try to shorten that game clock. And beyond that, um, with the access, the rules of engagement stated that the broadcasters could interview any of the players at any time, which you'll, you won't ever see happening in the NFL, not anytime soon. And I'll double down on that. Right. If anyone wants to, if I was a betting woman, you're not going to see that anytime soon. They might adopt some innovations, but 
uh, you know, the team isn't going to allow Diana Rossini from ESPN to run onto the field after a player throws a pick six and says, you know, you really screwed up there. What was going through your mind? It was just completely, and that made my head scramble, but that was just a completely different game watching experience to see the good and the bad and the drama. It was like a reality TV show in addition to elite football, a great football product. Definitely. I love that. I hope we see it soon. That would be amazing. (laughs) They're positing for a return. So I'm hopeful um, if the world cooperates, uh, we'll see something really great in 2022. Definitely. Definitely. Cool. Um, So last question about XFL, but can you kind of tell us like what was the biggest challenge that you faced? I feel like even I am still being educated on XFL. So maybe that is a large piece of like launching a new league. Like why would we need a new professional football league? That's my first thought, at least about the challenge and launching it. But what would you say was the hardest part about launching a league from your blank campus that you were talking about earlier? I think just the educational um, process around why uh, a, a new football league, like you said, why a new football league is necessary, especially in a market that has, you know, it's jam packed with, with entertainment options. You know, we're not just competing against um, whatever entertainment programming is happening in season. I mean, we're talking concerts, we're talking, there's just an array of, of different uh, programming or there was uh, at the time <laughs> to uh, engage with. So you really need to make the public who is eventually going to be your fan, who's going to invest in the team emotionally and financially, why this is um, a good investment and why you should spend your money with us. So one, um, the research told us that fan football fans actually want more football in the off season. So the research there supported, um, you know, the need for more programming without that, you can't move forward. Second thing was getting insurance. You need to get insurance to play professional football. 20 years ago, when the first XFL uh, was was launched, there were several insurance companies that would come forward and, you know, in, in, insure a football league. Now there's one. There was one. Um, and why is that? Head trauma, CTE, understanding the effects of head trauma as a byproduct of sports like professional football. So they had to get insurance buy-in. So that happened. Excellent. And then you had to fi- you had to communicate to the fans that this was this was for everyone. How much does it cost to go watch the Jets or the Giants at MetLife Stadium for a family of four? Or even if you want to take your your um, you know your partner, boyfriend, girlfriend to a game, you want a lower bowl seat. You want to park there. You want some popcorn. Oh wait, she's she's thirsty. She wants a soda. Oh, but that's in quench her thirst. So now she needs a water. Okay, you're spending a few hundred minimum just to show up and sit in the lower bowl for the Giants or Jets. At the XFL, you have all of the seats are lower bowl. So you get to be in an elite stadium, MetLife Stadium, where professional football is played in the in in New York. This is the, the epicenter of professional football at an elite stadium. So you can go sit in the lower bowl, $25 ahead. Um, parking was reduced. Uh, you have the opportunity to engage with players very intimately. Uh, we opened up the the coaches club. You could sit in the coaches club for $125 and be inside and then go watch Kevin Gilbride give his post-game speech. Um, you can be on the field uh, as a founding member, uh, which was our season ticket holder, for $125. You can sit on the field for an entire game 
for $200. I mean, you, it's unheard of. No professional football team has seating on the field. And that's for a reason. Uh, but we are literally bringing you as close to football as possible, figuratively um, and physically. So delivering that sort of experience at the price that we were able to is not exclusionary. Um, there are only certain people that can afford a few hundred, a few hundred dollars, especially now, to bring their whole family out one time to see the Jets or the Giants. But you could theoretically get season tickets, see all five games uh, for less than that, and be a part of something from the ground up that screams New York, New Jersey, the the values of this region. It's awesome. I'm excited. I want to go to an XFL game now. Twenty twenty two. We're all going. Everyone here. We're, <laughs> Let's go. I'll rent, the, I'll, I'll rent the bus. We're going. Awesome. NYU field trip. That'd be great. Um, cool. Okay. So I wanted to ask you about your transitions. So you've worked at so many different places. Um, can you kind of tell us like what you've learned about yourself after working at all of these organizations? You moved across the country a few times. Um, how, yeah. How did that affect you personally? Oh, wow. Okay. There, well, there's a lot to unpack there, but I will say that being in the sports industry is more of a lifestyle. It's not a job um, to kind of have that, that upward mobility. You have to be willing to kind of pack those bags and, and move to Minnesota. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. People will tell you, you get really comfortable working in a, in a team franchise setting. And because of that, uh, oftentimes, um, you know, the, maybe the person ahead of me um, had been there 17 years. And they're happy staying there. So unless something drastic happened, that would be my crack at it. Um, so you have to be willing to kind of take the opportunities, not only for growth, but upward mobility in this industry. And if that means moving to Hartford, Connecticut, which I did for four months, if that means packing everything up, leaving everything you know, and moving across the country and going to California as a New York kid, that's what you do. Um, so it taught me how to be fearless and and take calculated risks, uh, because all of them were, were calculated risks. It wasn't just like, all right, I'm just going to go do this. I was supported by, um, a wonderful community of mentors and a great family that was always like, all right, go fly away, go do your thing. Um, and they were understanding when I wasn't making it home for Christmas because I was working or I was missing birthdays, um, or showing up even single to Thanksgiving, every single Thanksgiving for one reason or another. Um, there were those compromises that I was willing to make. Um, and that's, you know, that's, I got very comfortable being uncomfortable, but, uh, at the end of the day, it was, it was like, I wasn't working one day in my life. I was doing these incredible things and feeling like I was making a real, real change and real impact. And that was what was important to me. And that was the constant thread. So every change I made, every, um, risk I took, it was to continue to push and challenge myself so that you know, I can, I can have these new learnings. I can, I can achieve these kind of uh, lofty goals that I set for myself. So yeah, just, just getting uncomfortable and, and making a change when things started to feel uh, settled, which, <laughs> which kind of is, is counterintuitive, but I guess that's just the way my crazy brain works. I say this all the time on my podcast, but it makes it so much easier when you love it. Like you have that passion for the industry. Like I can tell you're not just doing it because you're good at it or like, because you can, you actually, well, you're good at it and you can, but you love it. <laughs> so that helps. <laughs> Thank you. I think, and a lot of people in the sports industry are super passionate about what they do and you go and you feed off of that. And it's like, you're working with these, you know, these folks that are just like, 
happy to show up to work every day. They're not just muddling through. They're not counting the hours. And that becomes your family and that becomes your community. And some of the best friends, most significant relationships I have, my family, um, I met because they're sitting, you know, five feet away from me, uh, you know, for 16 hours a day. And we were in it. And there's something to be said about having that approach. And that's what you do every day. That's where you spend the most amount of your life is what you're doing from nine to five, or sometimes it's, it's four to 11, 4 a.m. to 11 p.m., depending. Um, sometimes it's earlier. LJ on this call will know she's done those late nights, those, you know, 5 a.m. calls with me in the New York uh, Open. I mean, it's just figure it out and do it because you love it. Um, I wanted to touch on, you mentioned your mentors and your coaches just a minute ago. Can you tell us a little bit more about who those people are and how your mentors helped you along your path? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, this is why mentorship is so important because, and this is why, you know, if you're, if you have the opportunity to be a mentee, I mean, do it, give that relationship everything that you can, um, because it will just help you having someone that's been there, that's wiser and is willing to invest in you, um, will just propel you in every sort of way imaginable, even if it's not getting you the job. It's helping you develop those intangible skills to stick with it and to have optimism and to sometimes believe in yourself when you're not feeling the self-love. Uh, and that's what my mentors did for me. I Probably the most formative person is a man by the name of Joe Favorito, who was my professor at Columbia. And I guess he saw something in me. I was a quirky uh, Italian-American like him that was just you know, in class and willing to kind of jump on whatever. Uh, so he's the, he's literally the godfather of PR in New York. He was with the New York Knicks um, for a very long time as the head of PR there, did the same for the Sixers. And now he works on everything from producing movies, Creed, Broadway plays. I mean, he just does everything and he's a professor. So he took me under his wing he got, he got me started into not only the real PR and getting exposure, exposure to that, but he gave me my first opportunity to teach. Um, when I was 22 and I didn't even graduate from uh, grad school yet, he brought me on as a teaching assistant for uh, the high school summer intensive. And then he hired me as a graduate teaching assistant. And then from there, I was able to become an adjunct at, at Columbia. So he literally informed every single aspect of my career in in the most intense and direct way you can imagine, one person. Um, and then I had some other, you know, incredible people that just were kind and and willing to kind of give back in ways and take risks and take chances on me and bring me into roles that maybe I wasn't on paper prepared for. Uh, my first, my boss at uh, at BSE Global with Brooklyn Nets. Uh, Mandy Gutman, and she's the head of comms and community relations right now for the entire portfolio. Uh, one of the most powerful women in all of sports and entertainment, one of the most kindest human beings I've ever met. So she taught me, you know, you can be powerful and good, but you don't have to be cold and you don't have to be mean and you don't have to be task oriented all the time. You can lead with empathy, you can lead with, lead with kindness and compassion and produce an even better result. Uh, so that was just. I adopted that philosophy and I work at that every day because I will never forget how I felt 
being empowered in that way. And that's what I want around me in my little bubble. That's what I want people to feel um, when I'm working with them or if I'm teaching them in a classroom. That's a philosophy you can get from a, from a mentor. And then um, recently, I would say, Mr. Len Elmore, uh, who, if you don't know who he is, do a quick Google. Please help yourself out. He is the first NBA player to graduate from Harvard Law School. He worked in the uh, district attorney's office in Brooklyn, helping with you know wrongful incarcerations and um, very innocence project implications there for a long time. Uh, he became one of the most uh, incredible lawyers for that cause. And he's a TV commentator and he's an educator. Uh, and he took me under his wing at, as um, his associate adjunct faculty member when I was at Columbia and informed all of my research interests. He is the reason why I went and pursued my doctoral studies. He's the reason why I'm focusing on uh, the research and um, really understanding from not from a practitioner's perspective, but from a research perspective, um, you know, these different issues, social justice um, in the context of sport and society. So I cannot tell you the importance of having good mentors. And here's just something incredible about him. He's probably the most impressive person I've ever met, not just because of his accomplishments, but because um, he has the, the heart of, of gold, humble and sweet. He'd be doing all these amazing things. He'd be on TV one day, commentating on a game, show up at Columbia, give the most heartfelt lecture I've ever heard in my life. And then he turned to me. I'd put together a couple slides and facilitated a discussion. And I, you know, I thought my part was like so small in comparison to what he was doing. And he would just be like, you know, you're you're a rock star. You're a star. Um, I can't wait to see what's next for you. What? Hearing that from him, even if he was maybe just, I don't know. Did he mean it? I think he really did. I think he really did. But that gave me the confidence to just be like, you know what? I'm going to go be a professor someday. And here's how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be just like Len Elmore. I'm going to be nice and I'm going to be awesome. and I'm going to be talented and informed and educated. We're going to go change the world. Mentorship. So important. Get a mentor, be a mentor. That's how this all works. I love those stories. It's amazing. Len is the best. He's so fun to talk to. Um, mm -hmm. Incredible. Awesome. I think I wanted to and before the Q&A session. So please drop your questions in the chat box or raise your hand. But I'm going to end on, I think, probably your most exciting, passionate question. Um, can you tell us about your focus on activism and social impact and what your philosophy is on leading or athletes leading with social impact and activism, finding your voice, using your platform, all of those fun things? Um, can you tell us about that? And then we'll jump into Q&A. Sure. So um, my, my philosophy is, is under construction. It, and I think that's important because we're changing with the times. But what, what hasn't changed is the importance of equality and opportunity. And um, we've seen this year, in particular, 2020, uh, some of the most devastating moments play out um, in our society. We're in the middle of, of a pandemic that you know we're in the middle of a very divisive national community as far as politics, um, as far as issues of, of social injustice that we see, social inequality. Um, and we've seen athletes literally lead the charge. We've seen sport organizations uh, say, no more, no more. Sports is no longer escapism where you turn on the TV 
and you just kind of chill out and you watch a game. You're seeing kneeling, you're seeing protesting, you're seeing unity, you're seeing messages that are addressing um, and mirroring the issues in our society. And as a researcher, I want to, you have to remain detached from from, um, how you feel personally. So that's something that I've that I'm training myself to do, to look at research questions, conduct studies, and then what are the implications for the business of sport? But it is undeniable that activism has an effect on the business of sport. We saw a historic boycott of an NBA playoff game where it wasn't a strike. You you had managerial buy-in. And then the league pivoted to a massive voting rights campaign, voting education. I mean, that is the power of of the athlete's voice. So I believe it should be studied. I believe it should be respected. And I believe that athletes, like human beings, are participants in our society. They are devastated by the same issues that we are. Their communities are suffering from the the same things that our communities are suffering for. So if they have a platform and they are questioned, and they're able to give their informed insight, there is no reason to have the shut up and dribble, dribble narrative. I don't get it. Because if that's the truth, then athletes and entertainers, they're mere gladiators out there for our enjoyment, and they should be doing nothing more. And I couldn't disagree more strongly. So um, that's what, that's that's kind of like, uh, why this line of research for me has emerged. It's why I'm, you know, teaching this coming semester. I'm bringing a new course to to the program for undergraduates um, that really focus on examining athlete activism in, in the context of sociology and sport. So hopefully some new infusions uh, in the curriculum. And I hope that if, you know, you, you all can lean in and, and jump in that course, if this is something that interests you and something that you want to talk and experience a little bit of catharsis around. We'll be we'll be having a lot of a lot of debates um, in in these classes going forward. I can I can feel the passion from through the Zoom screen. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you have we to just jump excited. through it. I mean, I've, now I'm now I'm trained. How do you keep uh, students kind of focused for a three hour session? Each jump through the Zoom screen. Yes, got to keep exactly. it active. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Awesome. Uh, great. So that's kind of my list of prepared questions. If anybody else has any questions, feel free to drop them in the chat or push your raise hand button. Um, I'll start off. I know I've been asking all the questions, but I'm curious, what do you say to people who think professional football should be canceled due to the injury risk? Um, That's a very, you already talked about like concussions and all the risks. Yeah. What do you, how do you feel about that? Well, it's not going to be canceled anytime soon because if, if football was on the line, as far as like a sport in general, then boxing would be the first to go. Right. Um, where head trauma is the ultimate goal that you're trying to achieve. And there's no one governing league. Um, and we can go on and on about, about boxing and MMA and, and that. But uh, head trauma is a byproduct of football. I think that the issue is um, a massive PR problem with, with football because because of the unknowns around CTE, because of the long-term um, unknown effects of, of head trauma and the NFL's very reactive response to the research aspect of it, the um, you know actually doing things to protect their players long-term. And I think they're 
they're getting there, but they haven't done enough and it, it hasn't been quick enough. Um, and I think there's a, the grassroots issue as well. If there's this perception that this sport is unsafe, I think you'll see more of a grassroots effect where, you know, parents may say, hey, you know, some, it's whoever has the purchasing power in the house and makes the organizational activities and drives to and from might say, you know what, I'd rather my, my son or daughter participate in a different sport That's, that is perceived to be a lesser risk. So I don't think football will be canceled. I just always look to the research and say, how do you how do you adopt rule innovations without changing the game to make the game safer? And there are ways. Patrick says, did you play any sports growing up? <laughs> I played soccer and softball uh, in my youth, but I actually was a trained dancer. Uh, so I did every sort of dance and continued um, that through through college. I was in the dance company through there. So um, that was what I ended up specializing in uh, once you kind of get to that age where feels good to specialize in something. Definitely. That's awesome. Yes, dance. Allie Weaver. Yes, dance. <laughs> Amazing. Um, let's do Arturo. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, thanks for joining us this afternoon. It's very informative and it helps a lot, especially people who are going into, into the sports business world. Um, my question is regards to you as the head communications officer at the XFL. With you mentioning that a lot of uh, athletes now have their own brand and you are trying to promote and make awareness of the brand of the Guardians and the XFL. Was mm -hmm. it hard or did you have to oversee any of the other? I mean, I know athletes have their own publicists, so they're taking care of their own content, what they're putting out there. But did you have to draw any lines in regards to what they were pushing versus what the mission of the Guardians was? That's a that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. Um, for I would say big four sports um, and major leagues, basketball, football. Um, it is very rare to have an athlete that doesn't have a publicist. That's just because of where they are. And that creates another layer of trying to do your job from a public relations standpoint or officer within that organization. But as I've mentioned, a lot of these guys are fringe guys. They, you know, some of them were like working at gyms or, you know, one of them had a job in IT um, you know, there, one was a landscaper, so they didn't have one, the, the monetary resources to hire a team when they're at this level in their career, or they're trying to cut corners and save a little bit of money. Uh, they're trying to play football. So in that way, they were very receptive to the coaching of it. In the other way, they were very, um, they wanted to do so much. And when there were certain, uh, people that were purported uh, you know, media that would DM them and kind of go through the not the right channels. You know, there was always some sort of ulterior motive. So for me, I'm never going to say, no, you can't do that. Or no, you can't say that. That's just, that's not my philosophy. It never has been. And it's, I don't know if it serves, serves people that do engage in that way. Um, my, the importance of that is educating them what the fallout could be if they take an interview that they're not prepared for, or if they engage on a podcast and they're looped into saying something that's going to live forever in perpetuity that is not good for their brand, that is worse than not doing an interview for the ridiculous upside potentially of getting some good PR and someone you know knowing your name a little bit more about your new job with the Guardians. So a lot of them were receptive. The hardest part was the access. Um, there are things said on a football field that 
those football players would never, ever, ever say outside of the context of a football field, of a battle. Am I saying it's okay? No. Some of the things are gross? Yes. But they're in the heat of battle. Guess what? All of that's recorded. So getting these like amped up hype, playing for their life, gentlemen, cuddle bears off the field to think about what they're saying into their mics while they're trying to pummel another player, make a huge, make a huge um, play for themselves. That is, I want to see someone that can do that because then they're going to rule the world. That's the next president of, of the, of the world of humanity. Um, so it was that, and it was understanding what the repercussions could be. So it's all education. There's no, you can't control anyone but yourself and how you react to things. Um, I was telling the group yesterday, um, I was speaking, uh, you know, lecturing in the champions course. And I said, as a PR person, you have to be a flatliner. You're the one running around with like a chicken without a head. And you're trying to manage communications vertically, laterally to the media. And you're losing your mind. Um, it's not going to bode well. So it's going to be what it's going to be. I'll help you through some controversy. But once you say something like that on national television, there's no, there's no really coming back from that. You can't say I didn't say that because everyone heard it. And now we're just doing damage control. So great question, Arturo. And it's so good to meet you. Thank you for joining today. Awesome. Um, let's do LJ's in the chat and then we'll jump to Jonathan. So LJ says, what's a habit or part of your daily routine that you make sure you never miss? I never miss hugging my dogs and petting them lots and lots of times a day. I think I just want to show you they're here. I don't know. They're, they're race cars right there. They're Ferraris, two beagles. Um, dogs are incredible. They help me stay centered and Zen. They're like my little heartbeats at my feet. I love them. So I never miss cuddling with them. That's an everyday thing many, many times a day. Um, and then I think um, whatever you want to call meditation, mindfulness, visualizing your version of that, um, I, I make it a point now to do that because it helps you with perspective. It helps you stay focused because it's really easy. And um, as positive and as excited as I sound right now, um, I have my moments. I have my moments. Everyone has their moments. Um, I bleed like you all bleed. Like this pandemic sucks. I'm a, I want to be in a classroom with all of you, you know, like everyone has their personal stuff going on. So I actually have a vision board. Uh, it's the first thing I see every morning other than my dog's breath in my face. And it has health goals, travel goals, uh, family goals, you know, all these things and then words to live by. And I look at that every day and I remind myself how blessed I am and that I'm looking at these goals and this is something that, that I'm going to make happen. So all this stuff that doesn't really matter that's outside of, outside of that, that's maybe won't matter in an hour from now or a week from now, it's not worth like losing sleep over and getting gray hairs over. So visualize, look at the vision board, keep your perspective and, and work at that every day. Because it's really, it served me. It served me really well. I love it. Thanks, Great LJ, person. for that question. Great question, girl. Thank you. Awesome. So let's do Jonathan, and then we'll wrap up with Noah. All right, yeah. Firstly, thank you guys so much for, for this session. This was kind of cool. And thank you so much. Um, I should call you Professor Gina. Oh, it sounds <laughs> uh, so good. It sounds so good. Good to meet you, Jonathan. 
good to meet you too. And thank you so much for imparting your passion, your knowledge. It's inspiring, but also heartwarming to know that NYU will um, sort of have a professor that is so attentive and knows how they would like to teach and most importantly, lead with empathy. I think that really hit me and like resonated super, super like at a high level. Anyway, um, concerning your efforts um, with social activism and responsibility um, and also athletes sharing uh, and you, you positively using their, their, their platform to share how they feel about certain things. Um, we all know that, the, that there is power and the power of peer pressure and research shows that two out of three um, of us will conform in public. Do you think that peer pressure plays a role in how athletes um, offer their opinion or share the perspective? Jonathan, amazing question. And I love how you rooted that in research. So let's go. Amazing. I love research. Uh, amazing. Let's go. So um, here's what I'll say. And I think this is really important because um, about, about a week and a half ago, I had Lance Thomas um, and we did a whole section on the athlete's voice and its impact on sport. And his whole mantra is, yes, I want to speak out, but I want to make sure that I'm informed. And I think social media has had an undeniable um, in vogue effect. So let's speak on it because everyone else is speaking on it. Um, let's show what we're doing, you know, because it, it might feel good and because you might feel a FOMO or on the outside of something that's in trend. And we've seen that this year a lot. We've seen people take to probably social media that had, you know, questionable motives or just did it because they felt the peer pressure. So do I think that there are athletes out there that are maybe not so genuine? Yes. But 2020 has created an environment where now other athletes are calling out um, their peers and saying, no, you need to get involved in whatever way possible. So no longer, I think, are we accepting, and even this extends to sports organizations, no longer are we accepting a statement of diversity and saying, we're, you know, the Brooklyn Nets are going to be a more diverse place. We're hiring a task force and it's not good enough. Where's the money? Where's the, where's the power? Where's the action to support, uh, you know, what, what you're, what you're putting out there, your actions need to match your, your statements. Um, and I think we can weed out what athletes have really done that organizing protests, giving back Lauren and Drew holiday, what they've done. Donate, he donated his entire NBA bubble salary to support um, Black-owned businesses, people of color, their, um, you know, their nonprofits to aid in this cause, to aid in the Black Lives Matter movement. So who's talking and who's actually doing the action? You can read that out and you can see that very obviously now. But I do think that there is a pressure to, to do what's in vogue. Um, and as Lance said last week, he said something just so brilliant, just because it's not being talked about actively every minute of every day on social media doesn't mean it's still not an issue and it's, and it's still not important. So you got to keep pushing and the true activists keep pushing and they ride in the shadows. They're not always taking to social media and saying what they're doing. So I think that's a great question. So much to unpack there. Amazing. Thank you for that. Awesome. I know we only have maybe a minute or two left, but Noah, do you want to Jump in yeah. with the last one. Yeah, quick question or two questions. Um, yeah. Hi, Noah. First of all, how are you doing? I uh, appreciate um, you speaking with us today. Uh, very interesting talk. So thank you. Thank um, you. And uh, first of all, 
I'm a Knicks fan, sadly, unfortunately. But um, what's your take on the Brooklyn Nets this season? What's your prediction? If that, then you, oh, uh, my yeah. gosh. I want to see KD back in action. Yeah. I want to see him. I hope he's healthy. I hope he's vibing. Um, I would love to see that. Um, and then, you know what? I will say this about the Knicks. I think um, New York basketball in general, and this I hold the I hold the Brooklyn Nets accountable to this too. New York fans deserve better yeah. than what we've been given. I agree. We deserve better. Um, it is very hard to stay a, a fan of the Knicks when they are com- increasingly dysfunctional, and it's only because of of, of one thing. And yeah. if you're you know it, I'm not going to say it. Of course, I'm not going to say it, but. I mean, the Knicks, you're talking about the Mecca. You're talking about the best place in the world to play basketball. Are you kidding me? You're talking about the best city in the world, one of the most storied brands. And you're telling me that we can't get big name free agents to the Knicks? KD, Kyrie. Ah, to the Knicks, to the Knicks. I don't know. So Brooklyn's cool. Brooklyn's on the rise. I've been waiting um, many, many years of my life for for this very moment, for the setup. So... Go Nets. Nets the day I die. That's how it's happening. That's what I'm going with. Very nice. And then one more question. Just uh, just speaking about XFL, um, I'm a big football guy. I actually, I was a quarterback, broke my femur, so I've experienced a lot of the uh, of the tragedies and the um, the, the, uh, the injuries of, uh, of football. But um, I just wanted to ask, you know, I know the XFL right now is what's their – what is the rock, for example, trying to do with the XFL? Is he trying to get me an NFL giants fan to come and watch the XFL or what's their, who's their target? Because me an NFL fan, I don't doing fancy football and all these things being so involved with, I don't think I would ever go and watch an XFL game, but how would you ever get me to come and watch an XFL game? Because I just, for example, I don't know the players, you know, how do I, how do you, how are you guys trying to, teach the nfl fans on what like you know like the players and i don't know who anyone is i just know that one quarterback right now is playing for uh the colt who was it the panthers pj walker yes yeah that's a guy that got cut 11 times from the colts yes literally like we just said grind in the shadows and gets an nfl start i mean that's a beautiful story and that's what the xfl is about but Um, is the xfl like are they trying to do, like, is it a D league? You know, are they trying to get players to the NFL by, you know, showing what they have at the XFL? Like what are, what's your goal with the XFL? Well, so it's, it's no longer my hope, but I think, cause I'm not involved directly in it, but it's not, it wasn't ever positioned as a development league um, because there's no tie to the NFL. There was no agreement. There was nothing on paper saying we're going to develop players for your league. Yeah. I think it is the hope of a lot of XFL players to get some game tape and to make a run at the NFL because it's no doubt the top, you know, the, the highest you can go. Right. So um, I think the rock is really a football purist. Um, You know, he, when he made some money, he donated uh, real quick, a million dollars to, you know, the university of Miami. He was one of those guys that didn't really have an opportunity in the NFL. Um, And what the XFL needs is a star like him to kind of bring that notoriety and to drive the narrative. So the narrative may change. It was alternative football programming that is exciting, that's faster, and that is more of a maybe a football purist league if you want to know like the up and comers and maybe see them on a roster like PJ Walker. 
but I think the rock is going to take this league and he's going to do better by the players better than what we've, what we did last year. I will say that improvements need to be made. Um, and I think, you know, if it stays on national television for more than five weeks, because you get to finish your season, I think you might maybe find yourself on Saturday. Yes. Yeah tuning through the channels and then you see just an outrageous play and you're like, I might watch this for a little bit longer and who knows yeah. what might happen. You might become a fan. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, Noah, but I hope you watch a game in 2022 or part we'll of it. Do. I will. And I'm get back to me on how you feel about I will. it. I'll, I'll, okay. I will. We'll do Good. It. Done deal. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Those were lovely questions. Um, thank you so much, Professor. This has been amazing i know i learned a whole bunch i'm sure everybody else did too um yeah thanks for giving us your time thank you all so much it's so great to uh you know to see new faces and meet people that i haven't met before um my emails are always open i try to manage expectations and say like i'll get back to you at some point it's the end of the semester we're gonna make it work but i'm always here for you guys if you want to talk kick the tires around um you know pick my brain i learn the most from from you guys you're the reason why i'm here so uh reach out stay connected um i put in the classes i'm teaching next semester two undergraduate courses one is brand new multimedia storytelling the other one is sociology of sport but we're really going to focus on athlete activism um, as a good portion of that but still tackle all of the other issues that are happening within sport and society and then one is a ms of sport business program um class which is public relations part of the core curriculum so uh if you feel like hearing my annoying voice for a semester come on out and we'll do the thing okay so good to meet you all you're awesome i love seeing your faces thank you aggie wonderful job thank you to professor antoniello join us in the next episode for anna condulis the associate dean with over 30 years of experience overseeing the areas of student affairs, alumni relations, events, and conferences here at the NYU School of Professional Studies. The SBS Replay Podcast is produced by the students of the NYU School of Professional Studies Student Council with Aggie Dent, Allie Weaver, April Cardena, Ariana Olivas, Shaquin Tao, Shirley Law, Shubra Mishra, Ding Wing. Special thanks to the NYU School of Professional Studies Office of Student Life. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SBSUSC and at SBSGSC. Thank you for listening and see you in the next episode. Take care.